Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. The Trump administration says it's ready to confront the spread of the coronavirus here in the United States and to contain the contagious disease. But the federal government did not initially speak with a unified voice as officials contradicted one another and outside experts spoke with alarm. It's not so much a question of if this will happen anymore, but rather more a question of exactly when this will happen and how many people in this country will have severe illness. The immediate risk to the American public remains low in significant part because of the president's decisive actions so far. I think what's clear is however many cases there are here now, there are going to be more. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. Yes. And from our shores, we've, you know, it could get worse before it gets better. It could maybe go away. We'll see what happens. Nobody really knows. Democrats are hitting the campaign trail and hitting it hard ahead of the South Carolina primary this weekend and with an eye to Super Tuesday next week. Will Bernie Sanders all but lock down the nomination or could the race break wide open as a more diverse range of Democratic voters weigh in? Are you going to win? Yes. All right. Because South Carolina is the trajectory to winning the Democratic nomination. There's a lot of news to break down this week. We'll start, however, with tomorrow's Democratic presidential primary in the Palmetto State. No one better to talk about that than Congressman Jim Clyburn. He's joining us from that state's capital city of Columbia. Mr. Clyburn is the third highest ranking figure in the House of Representatives, but more important for our purposes, he's represented South Carolina's sixth district in Congress since 1993. Congressman Clyburn announced his support for the person who you just heard a few moments ago. That's Joe Biden earlier this week. Thanks so much, uh, Congressman Clyburn, for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, Jim Clyburn, tell us a little bit about the dynamics of the vote uh, as we're just, uh, you know, just 24 hours away from it. Uh, what is the setup in the scenario in South Carolina for the Democratic candidates? Well, uh, South Carolina is, will be the fourth contest. Uh, as you know, we've had uh, Nevada, uh, New Hampshire, uh, and Iowa. But this is the first time that the demographic of the voters uh, resembles what the uh, voting uh, diversity of Democrats uh, will be in the fall. We made the case uh, to the Rules Committee uh, Democratic National Committee, uh, that South Carolina should be uh, in the so-called pre-primary window uh, because our candidates needed to have exposure uh, to more diversity. Uh, at least we would get some feel for how uh, people with diverse backgrounds feel about our candidates. We've been losing elections in the past because our uh, is not reflective uh, of what the uh, state is all about. Mm -hmm. No, here's New Hampshire. Uh, what? I was 3% African-American. New Hampshire, 1% African-American. And everybody says, if a Democrat can't get African-American votes, they can't win the general election. So why don't you have them exposing themselves to African-Americans uh, early on in the primary uh, before people get uh, their minds made up or have this perceived momentum running for one of the other candidates and you look for South Carolina to just follow along rather than giving you a good test of what the candidate's all about. And so that's why uh, uh, those of us feel that people like Joe Biden uh, will uh, give us a better candidate. So let's get to that for a moment. It had been said you might uh, hold off on, on uh, offering an endorsement till after uh, the people of your state had weighed in. But you did indeed endorse uh, the former vice president earlier this week. Two quick questions. Why'd you do that? And secondly, well, let's let's actually just start with that. Why Joe Biden? Uh, he's 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 had a little bit of a tough time in the first few races. Why do you think he's the best person to lead the Democratic Party and to lead the country? Well, let me have a, let me say something else. Because I, uh, we should go back and check. Uh, four years ago, uh, I endorsed Hillary Clinton earlier in the process than I did this time. Uh, John Kerry, I endorsed John Kerry uh, early in the process. Mm -hmm. Did Gephardt way back? When he was running, I endorsed him. 
So I don't know where that came from, but I never uh, have right, waited to see how my state will go. I've seen those reports, but that's not true. All right. Fair uh, enough. So tell us about the, the person you did endorse, uh, Joe Biden. Why is he the per- best person to carry the banner for the Democrats? I always say that history ought to inform us. And when you look at the history of the candidates in the race, see where they have been on issues of importance to the Democratic voters. Joe Biden has the best record. Uh, Joe Biden is a Democrat. Uh, He's not a Democratic Socialist. He's not someone who was a Republican until uh, several weeks ago. He's a Democrat. He's always been uh, a Democrat. Elected to the United States Senate at the age of 29, so he has the background and the experience that we we need in a candidate. He is the author of the the Violence Against Women Act. He was chair of the Judiciary Committee when we extended the Voting Rights Act for 25 years. So it's one thing to talk the talk. It's something else to walk the walk. And Joe Biden has walked the walk. You go through his record, and you've got to admit that he has the best Democratic record among those who are currently running. Uh, and so that's why uh, my long history with him uh, gave me the comfort level I needed to endorse him in this race. Now, you can win a race on soundbite. Uh, I said to one media source this morning, I was around in 1972 when I saw the same kind of scenario shaping up that's shaping up now. And we nominated George McGovern because the so-called real progressives, uh, liberals, if you please, wanted him. The Southern African-American Democrats in Miami in 1972, ended up walking out of the convention. Uh, we, California, uh, challenged South Carolina's delegation, tried to kick us off the floor. That kind of foolishness is what's going on right now. Well, uh, for, people for those, uh, really, I'm sorry. I was going to say, Congressman, it sounds like for those listeners who may not have lived through that time in the way you did, you're, what you're describing, it sounds to me, is that you're saying Bernie Sanders may be that kind of pure progressive figure who will ultimately divide the party in a way that will hurt its chances in the fall. Is, is that what you're sketching out for us? Well, that's exactly what uh, my colleagues are saying to me. Uh, everybody seemed to be feeling uh, that our party ought to move over to where my good friends are, they call themselves the squad, uh, three of, of whom are, Af- uh, or two of whom are African-Americans mm-hmm. and two uh, in another caucus. They did not re- flip in the seats. They replaced other Democrats. You've got people now who are running against Democratic incumbents, uh, especially in the Congressional Black Caucus. They aren't flipping seats. They seem to be wanting to defeat those of us uh, who have been holding on to this party in all these years. So where we get this idea from that these 25 or so people who flip seats ought to be ignored uh, in their interest. I've been out here camping for the other. I've mm-hmm. been out with the, the, the Old Red down in Texas. I've been down there with VC in Texas, and I know what they're saying to me. These people are saying, if I have to defend uh, the credentials, of our presidential nominee, I'm going to end up losing my re-election. And we so this has, re- this, this has repercussions both at the White House level and very much at the level of, you know, can the Democrats hold on to maintain control of the House of Representatives where you serve so uh, in such a senior form. Congressman, we only have a few minutes left uh, and we appreciate your time today. But I, I do want to ask you a little bit about questions that do involve race, one of which is a number of black voters have told uh, reporters of their dismay and concern about the fact that uh, candidates, uh, including Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, were not able to persevere at least this far to get to a point in, in the primary uh, process where they could be before a more diverse electorate. Uh, to what degree do you share that concern, even as you've endorsed uh, uh, Vice President Biden among those who remain? Well, look, I was with Cory uh, Booker for a little bit last night. Uh, he's thanked me for all the help that I gave him in his campaign. I did what I could to help uh, uh, Kamala Harris. But here's the deal. We try 
to make the process open for everybody, and we did that. We had three African-Americans running. Uh, we had others, uh, Asians, uh, running. We can't guarantee success. We have to guarantee a fair and open process, which we did. Now, uh, given time, given the process, the time to work, we may be able to get to a point uh, where we can do better with that. Mm-hmm. And I'll just remind you, uh, Barack Obama uh, is African-American, a real African-American, daddy African, mother American, and he won, and won big. So what does that say about the process? This is the same process we had in place. It doesn't always yield a good result. Maybe what we got to do is do a better job of fundraising, because what got them out of the race is the inability to raise the kind of money uh, that needed to stay afloat. So the process is open. It worked well, and we elected an African-American president. Uh, it, it, it can't guarantee and, success. And now you're, now you're looking for— you're looking for his vice president to get the lift. In the last minute we have left, Congressman, Joe Biden has said, you know, just get me to South Carolina and I can pull this off. In recent days, he's made strong appeals to African-Americans. In one instance, even saying, hey, I was arrested with Nelson Mandela in South Africa. That turns out not to have been true. Uh, what concern do you have about the vice president's uh, – the way in which vice president is seeking to appeal to black voters in some ways that's not consistent with the historical record? Well, I don't know about that. Someone said the same thing to me about – that claim. Maybe he, it did not happen. But let me assure you, back in the 60s, there were many times when I thought I was arrested and the police picked me up at one spot and took us four or five blocks away and dropped us off, and there's no record of that. I felt arrested, and maybe I wasn't. So I, I tell people all the time, let's be careful about how uh, we deal with these kinds of issues, because these kind of activities like what's going on with Nelson Mandela, what was going on with Martin Luther King Jr. here. Yep. You had some arrests, which were not arrests. Okay, so we're going to we're going to have to leave it there. That's you're hearing from Congressman Jim Clyburn of South Carolina. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you. Coming up, a pair of journalists covering politics, policy, and more. Join me to look ahead beyond South Carolina. Plus, we'll be talking about the government response to coronavirus. I'm David Folkenflik, and this is on point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures, There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. 
Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflick. Bernie is a, is a risky choice. He has not been supportive of an awful lot of stuff we've done. And the things he's proposing, he's a good guy. But his health care plan is no, not going anywhere. Joe is a friend of mine and a decent guy. But that is not the voting record or the history that is going to excite people, bring them into the political process, and beat Trump. Bernie and I agree on a lot of things. But I think I would make a better president than Bernie. Bernie Sanders, at this moment, he's the Marsha, Marsha, Marsha of the Democratic Party, the name on everyone's mind. Beyond the horse race, what are the voters on the ground talking about? What issues are motivating them? And who in this race do they believe can solve those big problems? Who do they believe can beat Donald Trump? Joining us to separate the signal from the noise and help us understand the news is a powerhouse pair of reporters. Jenny Medina is national politics reporter covering 2020 based on the West Coast for the New York Times. She is with us today from Los Angeles. Welcome to On Point, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. And coming on the show from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, Sung Min Kim. She's a White House reporter covering Capitol Hill for the Washington Post. Sung Min, glad to have you on once more. Hi, thanks for having me. Why don't we start with a question from a listener? Uh, uh, Brenda uh, calls in from North Andover, Massachusetts. She has a question about the Democratic Party's reaction to a very specific candidate. Why is the Democratic Party so afraid of a Bernie Sanders nomination? Uh, Why don't you take that, Jenny? Uh, Answer that question for us. We heard a little bit from Jim Clyburn talking about House members' concerns. What about the party generally? It's such a great question. Um, I think that one thing that we are hearing a lot from the establishment and from people like Representative Clyburn is this fear that a Sanders nomination will hurt down-ballot races. So it will hurt people running in congressional districts that had flipped from Republican to Democrat in the midterms, or that he will just, you know, hurt the party in any race that is not the presidential. There's also, of course, this fear that he can't bring out swing voters in the various swing states. And the Sanders response, the campaign's response to that has been, well, we're going to motivate a whole new section of voters. And that record so far in the primaries has been a little bit mixed. Uh, thinking ahead, so we heard about South Carolina. Super Tuesday is just a few days away. I'm reading here the states that are involved include Alabama, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Democrats abroad, expats, uh, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, and the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, Sungmin Kim, uh, as we think about it, uh, you know, these are different parts of the country, so they may not all be unified. But we've we've seen some interesting things uh, come into play. Are there commonalities here that candidates are stressing as they look to this broad swath of votes? Or are they regionalizing issues and concerns? Are they customizing them for the different states involved? I think largely you've seen simil- the same messages that you've seen as they've as 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 they've campaigned through the early states. I mean, you're hearing the electability arguments from uh, some of the more moderate candidates. You're hearing about uh, the you know the. Issues of issues that Jenny mentioned about what Bernie Sanders has been emphasizing, his ability to bring out a new generation of voters. But what you're also seeing now as the race gets a little tighter and we're getting to that point where we really do need to winnow down the list of the, the list of um, the candidates that are still out there is a stronger contrast between uh, candidates who normally weren't willing to make such contrast before. And I'm thinking particularly of Elizabeth Warren, who really does need a stronger showing She's getting a lot of attention. She has gotten a lot of uh, rave reviews and clearly a lot of a fundraising boost for her debate performances in these last two debates. But you're seeing now, I mean, not only is she going after Michael Bloomberg, who she clearly has a a really difference in policy view with, but also uh, making much sharper contrast with Bernie Sanders that she had before. I mean, you just heard on the clip that you played earlier that she is, while she may share a lot of the policy visions and policy views 
issues as uh, Senator Sanders. She's the one who can get it done. And now that we're kind of in this crunch time, where not only um, are the candidates making an affirmative case for themselves, but they're really sharpening contrast with each other. And the state that I'm going to be really watching on that on that Super Tuesday is California. Obviously, the most delegates up for stake on a state on a day where already a third of all the delegates are up for grabs, and Senator Sanders has been leading significantly in polling in that state. And um, if he does well, um, and, and depending on how he does in other states, of course, but that's going to be a really uh, key state to keep an eye on on Tuesday. Jenny, you posted a fascinating story uh, in the wee hours of this morning about Elizabeth Warren, about what she represents to women and how they have followed her seemingly uh, uh, shall we say, slightly wilting fortunes in, in recent weeks. Tell us what you found in your reporting. So this story was sort of something that I've been collecting in my notebook for some time. And as Elizabeth Warren's sort of polling has gone down and her standing has gone down in the race, I've noticed even at her own rally, this sort of sense of despair, particularly from women who really see themselves in her. People who are college educated, people who have spent some time in the workforce, people who really, women who really thought they had a fair shot, and then something happened to make them think, you know, sexism, misogyny is alive and well. And those women really feel bereft and and quite depressed to see that Warren has not been doing all that well or doing well at all in any of the first states. Um, and it's particularly interesting, too, in California, where her fortunes might bump up a little bit. Polling has shown her doing well enough to get some delegates in California. But for women who see her as this sort of potential savior or this fascinating, important character are really saddened to see that in the early states she has pulled, she has come in third and fourth place. Uh, Sung Min, I want to turn now to the question of, of gun violence. We obviously had an incident uh, in Wisconsin at the Molson Coors campus in Milwaukee in which uh, an electrician who worked there for uh, at that campus for nearly 20 years uh, killed five uh, people and then took his own life. Uh, a terrible and deadly event. The question of guns itself, uh, important for some voters, uh, certainly the question of, of gun violence, important for most Americans one way or another. But it's been a slightly divisive one on the campaign trail, right? You've had uh, Joe Biden in particular hit uh, Bernie Sanders for his early support of gun rights as a, se- as a congressman and as a senator in Vermont. Uh, Bloomberg, of course, has put many millions of dollars behind the question of gun control, I believe, in the nine figures over the years, uh, and yet has been very quiet about it of late towards Sanders. Can you talk to me a little bit about that dynamic? Why wouldn't be people be hitting Sanders a little harder? And how does this play for the man who appears to be the front runner right now? That's actually a really good question um, because earlier in his congressional career, um, Bernie Sanders has been uh, has been supportive of positions that are more friendly towards gun rights owners, and he's rationalized it by saying Vermont is largely still a very rural state, respective of gun rights. He does tout that he has, I believe, he says a D plus from the NRA, but uh, most Democrats would be proud to tout an F from the NRA. So right. um, you've What's heard that plus, by- buddy. Exactly. Um, and he has it's, it's back in the it's mostly in the early 90s when there was a major debate over the assault weapons ban and whatnot. And the in the key vote that uh, the the vice the former vice president has gone after Sanders for is that vote on liability for gun manufacturers. And he mentioned it a little bit at the Nevada debate um, and much more so at this most recent debate in South Carolina to make that contrast uh, to, to make that contrast with Senator Sanders. But you're, you're right about Bloomberg. I mean, we've seen the former New York City mayor not have the sharpest uh, debate performances, shall we say. But that issue of guns is where really he could – he can can and should have got on the offensive against some of his other candidates because he does have a lot of weaknesses um, in his record. Uh, he is, as you know, Congressman Clyburn pointed out earlier, he is a recent convert to the Democratic Party. He has supported Republicans in the past. A lot of things in his history that has been a major target point for other candidates. But on his record of uh, combating gun violence and climate change, those are two issues where other Democratic candidates have praised him on. And it is surprising 
amazing how he's not emphasizing that more, obviously, his ads do. But he himself, especially in these debates, has not、uh, promoted that part of his record. And gun violence, while it is a salient issue all across the country,、um, as we have seen tragically over the last several years, it especially is true、um, in a lot of in a, in a couple of these past、um, early、uh, nominating contests, certainly、mm-hmm. in South Carolina with the tragedy in 2015, and in、uh, Nevada、uh, with、mm-hmm. the、uh, with the shooting at the country music festival a couple of years ago.、Um, So it really is.、Uh, we we saw、um, it, we saw in early debates whether it was where it was a much more debated issue. I remember、uh, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke talking about a gun registry and and whatnot. But the issue has gone a little bit quieter as other issues have come to the fore. Just as、uh, Joe Biden has been looking to get to South Carolina, hoping to propel him to Super Tuesday, it'd be interesting to see what Mike Bloomberg does、uh, in his, you know, given whatever performance he's able to elicit from、uh, Super Tuesday. I've noticed in recent days he's given a number of significant sit-down interviews with、uh, PBS's Judy Woodruff, with 60 Minutes、uh, Scott Pelley, that'll be、uh, broadcast on Sunday,、uh, coming out、uh, to be interviewed in ways that he really hadn't、uh, in recent days.、Uh, Jenny Medina, you also on the campaign trail in your reporting have come across immigration coming up in a way that we haven't really heard so much about from the candidates lately. How are voters talking about it? In California, immigration, of course, is a huge issue, and the same was true in Nevada, where I spent a lot of time before the, the caucus. There, it's an issue that a lot of people it affects their lives. They have relatives who are. Here, undocumented, and there's a lot of frustration, particularly people in the immigrant. Activist community that it hasn't been spoken about at all on the debate stage, or hardly at all since the first debate. And it's interesting to see whether it will be interesting to watch whether that changes. There's no debate between now and Super Tuesday when both California and Texas votes, but there is a debate scheduled with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus before Arizona, where I suspect that will come up.、Um, and I just want to mention back on California. One of the things that's so interesting here is how much Bloomberg has blanketed the airwaves and tried to be sort of all things to all people. He's talked about gun control. He's talked about his experience as mayor. He's got an ad in heavy rotation that features women、um, praising him profusely to sort of buttress the claims that he's had problems with women who've worked for him in the past. Or、so、at least knocked them、I'm、down. Watching, he's yes, exactly.、Um, And I'm very interested to see how well he does or doesn't do here on Super Tuesday. And you think,、uh, regardless of what happens, he's persevering. He's got the money. God knows. He certainly has made it clear that he wants to persevere, and he said that there's essentially almost no limit to how much money he can and will spend. All right. I want to turn now to something that we'll probably hear a lot more about on the campaign trail, but we're not so much a political issue so much as a national issue, and that's the question of.、Uh, The coronavirus and the government's response to it. We spent a, a decent chunk of time on it yesterday and on point.、Uh, Jeremy Konindike is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. He's director of foreign disaster resistance for USAID from 2013 to 2017 under the Obama administration. And he spoke with my on point colleague Megna Chakrabarty yesterday about the federal response to coronavirus. The headline messaging from the government for the past month. Has been that things are under control and there is a low risk, and、um, if we begin seeing, if we were to begin seeing widespread in the United States, I think that would look quite out of touch, and that actually would spark more panic than if they had been saying,、um, you know. We are doing our best. We are doing our best to contain it. We will not be able to contain it forever, and you need to be prepared for disruption. And we will let you know when we have turned that corner. Sung Min Kim, is this a government that is well poised uh, uh, and well positioned to address the potential of this disease becoming、uh, not only contagious but widespread in this country? Well, I think there are certainly several people、um, who are working on this in the government that have a have a track record of being able to handle these situations.、Um, Dr. Fauci, I mean, is widely respected on Capitol Hill.、Uh, the 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 official that、um, Vice President Pence has tapped for kind of to coordinate the response under him,、uh, Debbie Bix, is is someone who's also been widely respected and has that experience in her field. But we've seen already mishaps from this administration on their handling of this and. 
particularly I'm thinking of that whistleblower complaint that was disclosed yesterday about the unpreparedness of HHS officials who went to go investigate um, a coronavirus case. Um, and also the president himself. Um, there's been uh, w- w- the, le- the last thing that you want in a crisis like this or in a situation like this is mixed messaging coming from the government, coming from the administration. And we saw at the press conference with the president on Wednesday evening that you, you were seeing those mixed messages in real time. And that is something that is not um, comforting uh, to the American public who are, you know, nervous and, and perhaps even frightened about the impact or the threat of the coronavirus in domestically here in the United States. And now you see the administration trying to corral uh, the messaging into under one umbrella coming under Mike Pence's office, uh, saying they want to make sure that the government wants is speaking with you, one unified voice. Um, but that's also raising concerns about whether this this administration is not is sort of even muzzling information uh, to the public. And uh, there was a coronavirus briefing this morning on Capitol Hill. Dr. Fauci was asked whether he whether that whether uh, that was happening. He said no. But um, but the administration does have to get on the same page. And the president has been concerned, but a lot of it because of what it's doing to the stock markets. Uh, we've seen such a collapse in the in in the stock markets over this week related to the coronavirus concerns. And the president knows, I mean, the president has staked his fortune so much on the rise of the stock market. And, you know, you know, you live by the stock market, you die by the stock market. And for and, and that's a part of the reasons why you're seeing so much concern uh, and a little bit of defensiveness from the president right now on the government's handling of the coronavirus, as we've seen in his Twitter feed. Um, it strikes me, Sung Min, also that, you know, you mentioned the question of the re- response of HHS officials. The, the whistleblower's complaint was that they weren't themselves prepared properly to think about how to make sure they didn't get infected and didn't spread the disease themselves, right? Uh, you've had Secretary Azar, who initially was as the head of HHS, the health uh, agency for the feds, supposed to be leading this. And he's been grilled as to whether or not this uh, – a vaccine, once it's developed, will be affordable. And he said, well, we'd like it to be affordable, but we can't guarantee that. Uh, you know, there are signs from the government that it's not clear they've fully thought through exactly how to deal with this. Exactly. And I also believe the secretary had given um, had given some inaccurate information about just the fatality rate as compared to the, you know, the normal the normal flu versus the coronavirus. So, again, all this information, um, just how the administration, this confusion about how, but who is in charge, um, even even after the press conference on on Wednesday, when the president has started going on, walking away from the podium, Secretary Azar also kind of, as I say, he was still in charge and part of this too. So the administration clearly does need to get this straightened out a little bit. We're discussing the federal government's response to the coronavirus, the political battle lines, the public health debate, and a little bit about what we as Americans can do to protect ourselves from the spread of the disease. Plus, our guest Sungmin Kim was with President Trump on his trip to India this week, and we'll hear about how and why career civil servants are being pushed out of government. I'm David Folkenflick, and this is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick. We're talking about the federal government's response to the coronavirus and the funding fight on Capitol Hill to make sure we in the United States are ready for the virus's near certain spread, whether that means a contained number of cases or an epidemic that could shut down schools, businesses, public transportation, and other places people gather. Joining me today, a razor-sharp pair of reporters, Sung Min Kim of The Washington Post and Jenny Medina of The New York Times. Jenny, uh, 
you've heard a talking point emerge from the president's supporters, particularly in media, uh, Sean Hannity, Fox News, uh, the president himself, uh, Britt Hume of Fox and others who say, you know, Democrats are really uh, and uh, whipping this up irresponsibly, fears of the coronavirus. They're desperate to pin this on the president and pin the idea that somehow this is going awry. Uh, how fair is that characterization? Are we hearing that on the campaign trail? You know, it's actually been pretty absent from the campaign trail, at least as of last week. I think they're starting to talk about it now. But I think they've actually, for the most part, have bent over backwards to say this isn't a political issue. And what we need to do is reassure people. You saw Amy Klobuchar do that on the debate stage this week. And for the most part, that's what they're really trying to do on on the trail. Of course, there is so much fear and confusion over this that I think it's almost impossible for people not to be whipped into a frenzy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sung Min, you cover Capitol Hill as well as the administration and the interplay of the two those two branches of government. The president made a budget request, as I understand it, over a over billion dollars. It seemed as though it could expand to over $2 billion, which sounds like a lot of money. But on Capitol Hill, a lot of uh, public figures, uh, Democrats and some Republicans said, that's not nearly enough to start addressing this. Where are they coming from on that? Well, generally, um, Democrats have always sought for more money for for these kinds of issues. But what's interesting is that you're hearing from Republicans that perhaps the two two I believe two point five billion dollar request from the administration is not enough. And what you want to do for these emergency um, supplemental packages is that you want you don't want to have to go back again and try to get more money because it wasn't enough the first time. You want to make sure that the emergency resources that Congress allocates is enough for that first time to make sure you have all the resources, to make sure you are reassuring the public that the government has these, has the appropriate amount of resources to respond to this, uh, to respond to this uh, issue. Um, I did think it was interesting that, um, you know, after complaining that, you know, Democrats will always ask for more and Democrats will always say it's never enough, the President Trump at his news conference on Wednesday did seem to be open to raising that amount of money. Um, and I believe the figure, the latest figure that's been tossed around on Capitol Hill is more in the neighborhood of $4 billion, clearly not as much as the $8 billion that uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer had tossed around, but clearly higher than the initial figure from the administration. Now we'll see if the administration, which is full of fiscal hawks, such as Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, stick to that figure. Um, but uh, the, these these funding fights, um, it, it could be a relatively seamless uh, bipartisan affair, especially once you get the appropriators working on Capitol Hill, they can generally agree to anything. But um, but it is a question of whether this president uh, will will be concerned with how uh, with whether it's too high or, you know, whether um, he just is not willing to negotiate with Democrats. But there were some uh, bright signs or or some encouraging signs for some sort of a bipartisan agreement um, at that news conference on Wednesday. And Sung Min, before we relinquish uh, this particular folk, uh, topic and talking, relinquish talking about coronavirus at the moment, um, you know, as we alluded at the top, this has been a little bit of a rocky time for this. It's been c- conflicting information, it's seemingly given from top uh, cabinet officials and the, and the White House itself versus some of their experts in government. And they brought in a, an ambassador who uh, has overseen, for example, the federal government's response to AIDS HIV as to be a lead coordinator on this. Uh, Vice President Pence brought in uh, the uh, – I believe it was the Times that reported that, uh, that Pence was essentially told by Trump, well, you don't have much to do. Why don't you do this? How much does it seem now that the even as there were concerns that that certain kinds of uh, messages weren't able to to be get, to get out, that they were consolidating things, how much uh, belief is there now that there is a kind of consolidated, uh, science driven, medically driven approach to a dealing with this d- disease and this possible outbreak? Well, like we discussed earlier, there are several um, career officials, career public service officials that are widely trusted by the public, by Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill. But Vice President Pence in particular has been criticized in the last day or so since he was put in charge of the coronavirus response about whether he was going to take that science-based approach to handling this crisis. A lot of people have, a lot of his critics have pointed to his record as governor in Indiana uh, with the HIV outbreak that occurred there. 
Um, and also, um, he has gotten some criticism. He had talked about, I believe, about a half a dozen governors um, yesterday to talk about this crisis. One was uh, Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, and he said he told he told uh, Vice President Pence that he really uh, was hoping and skeptical, but skeptical that the administration was taking a science-based approach to this. So you're already um, the, the Vice President Pence is already coming at this with a lot of skepticism, uh, particularly from Democrats about how he's going to be able to handle this. And what this does for a president is that uh, while generally the buck stops with uh, the president of the United States, here the buck is going to is most likely going to stop with Vice President Pence because the president has put him in charge here. Well, I think the one consensus that we can have is uh, people uh, uh, wash your hands, stop touching your face, and if you feel real sick, stay at home. Uh, uh, With that, I'd like to turn a little bit now to that trip to India. The President Trump started his week with a whirlwind trip there. Uh, Let's take a listen to him uh, there with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Namaste Trump! Namaste Trump! America loves India. America respects India, and America will always be faithful and loyal friends. There is an uneasy calm in Delhi, kept by hundreds of police and paramilitary. It has come late. At least 35 people have died and over 200 injured in the worst communal riots in decades. Trump and Modi are united by similar nationalist rhetoric. The Trump was intended to ease tensions and move a trade deal forward, although no deal was forthcoming. Before cheers inside the stadium ended, violence erupted in India. Now there are reports that some 35 to 38 uh, people are dead in racial riots between Hindus and Muslims. Sungmin, you were with the president in India on that trip. Let's tap on your reporting a little bit here. Uh, it was described as riots. Uh, my recollection from the initial reports anyway was actually that Hindus – uh, were armed, were walking through the streets looking for Muslims to beat and to hurt. Uh, what actually played out there? There was a lot of violence that erupted uh, during the president's visit to India, and it was just this. It was it was this kind of stark. Uh, this, this dichotomy, if you will, because you've seen, you know, we're we're with the president, and there's this all this grandeur. You know, he gets a hero's welcome in India. He has the biggest crowd that he has ever seen, um, that that he had ever. Um, that he had ever been greeted to. And there are signs all over the city welcoming the president. And then elsewhere in Delhi, there was this massive violence that was breaking out. Um, uh, and all these tensions that were all these tensions that were breaking out. And what was remarkable uh, was that the president didn't really have much to say about that violence. Uh, mm-hmm. We did raise that issue several times during the news conference that he was there, particularly, you know, about the violence, and also just on the substance of that new, very controversial citizenship law in India, which the president actually hadn't commented on the substance of. Um, and even e- even in India, even when pressed by reporters uh, several times, you know, what is your stance on this citizenship law, which obviously for the first time uh, takes into account religion as a criteria for uh, nationality purposes in India. And, in, in India. And he refused to take a stance. He said, you know, this is up to India. Um, he And this is also a, a day after he, you know, pre, uh, praised India's history of religious tolerance at that speech um, at that Namaste Trump's uh, rally. So right. it was really kind of this striking uh, images. You know, the White House officials had told us beforehand that he may ish- raise the issues of religious freedom, uh, issues of the citizenship law in private. Uh, he very may well have. We don't have indication that he did. But certainly uh, this was not something that he was willing to criticize Modi for in public. Jenny Medina, you're covering the 2020 race pretty uh, uh, intently. Uh, We heard reports that pretty much hours after the president's uh, return to the United States, he sent out – his campaign sent out blasts to Indian Americans seeking their support, a fairly significant block of support. And that also we've heard in recent days that the president is seeking – has set up uh, centers in his reelection bid to try to appeal to African-Americans, particularly African-American males, to try to peel those away from whoever the ultimate Democratic nominee is. What is the president – uh, what does a trip to India do for the president as he seeks to uh, establish a, a base for him to to win re-election? What I think the president's campaign with the re-election campaign is trying to do is peel off blocks of voters in any place that they can. So 
African-American voters, Indian voters, Latino voters, anybody who has some sort of ethnic tie and who are traditionally thought of as being Democratic voters, they're really going after them and saying, look at what we're doing for your community. Um, whether it works, is, of course, is the big question. We have a, a, a listener writing in on Twitter. Brian Blake writes in, we could also point out the Trump organization, excuse me, the Trump organization has over $1 billion in projects in India currently going on, a recurrent theme when it comes to this president and uh, and foreign countries, no doubt. Um, Jenny, I wanted to turn for a moment also to the question of the Trump administration uh, in this moment after the impeachment trial and crisis has gone in this moment as they are looking ahead to the November elections and the question of what they consider to be uh, at the top echelons of the White House loyalty. We've seen what's being described as a purge and we're se- we've seen what's being described as a concerted effort to identify people to cast out. Bring us up to date as to what's going on. I mean, what we've seen the president do, and I'm sure someone can talk about this even more extensively, is try to get rid of anybody who testified against him, who implicated him in any sort of way. And one of the things that's interesting me on on the campaign trail is that there's actually a lack of interest of the, on this from Democratic voters, at least. On the Democratic side, you hear very little talk about impeachment from the candidates on the campaign trail, about the purge on the campaign trail. And it just doesn't seem to be something that is really uh, motivating or activating Democratic voters in choosing their own nominee. It's almost as if there's like a collective shrug and this is what they've come to expect from the White House. And Jenny, why do you think that's the case? I think there's a lot of weariness and a lot of just a total exhaustion about it. I think it is something there, a lot of Democrats thought they weren't going to succeed on impeachment, but saw the need or felt the need to do it anyway. And I think among voters, there's a real sense of this is not going to work. The only thing that will work is is defeating Trump in November. Sungmin Kim, let's take it off the table as an election issue. Let's take it on the table, put it on the table as something worth covering and understanding about our government, what's done with our taxpayer dollars and who gets to do it. What's going on? Who's driving? We've heard reports that there's a network of conservative allies who are helping to draw up what are called purge lists. What's happening there? Well, it's a it's part of a broader theme of the president kind of narrowing his inner circle over the over the course of his presidency. And you've seen uh, more and more these people who may not have been, uh, f- you know, full Trump supporters at the beginning or who may have been critical of the president or may have tried to been guardrails uh, for President Trump within the administration slowly leave. You know, you're thinking of, you know, former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, former Chief of Staff John Kelly, and really the president, you know, Know, surrounding himself with loyalists who aren't, you know, necessarily going to say no to ideas, to decisions that he may try to make. And also, this is a part of him being just so much more emboldened after being acquitted of the impeachment charges. And we saw, obviously, this list that's being drawn up by to in order to for uh, people to replace uh, people to replace uh, certain key positions in the administration with. You're seeing him just obviously the the purge of officials that we saw immediately after the acquittal of people who testified during the impeachment inquiry and also his um, the the prospect of whether he's going to pardon his close friend Roger Stone, who was convicted last week. Uh, he does feel this sense of emboldenedness. He uh, certainly enjoys his pardon power. It is one of the few powers of the presidency where it is fully on him and, and he can go virtually unchecked uh, in that power. So it is a lot of uh, that right now, that really closing in and and, and just being surrounded by an inner circle that is completely loyal to him. Um, and we're going to continue to see that as the as the year progresses. One of the things that struck me was in reporting in your newspaper and elsewhere was that it said that the, among the folks helping advise the president uh, was Ginny Thomas, uh, who's the wife, a longtime conservative activist and the wife of uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Obviously, the president in recent days has been suggesting uh, that liberal justices should should preclude themselves from weighing in on cases involving him uh, because they're biased against him, as though they, you know people appointed by Democrats shouldn't have a vote. In, in, in the minute or so that we have left, I want to touch on another thing. It seemed to me as though in some ways the president wants to identify an opponent. His campaign, uh, uh, and I'll let Sung Min, uh, well, I'll ask Jenny if she wants to weigh in, but his campaign decided this week to sue the New York Times for libel, for 
an opinion column written by a former executive editor, Max Frankel, almost a year ago. Jenny Medina, how are people inside the Times taking that? You know, I honestly, I've been spending so much time out on the campaign trail that I really, frankly, don't have a good answer for that. I don't know. I think it's a it is not. I think most of us are frankly focused on doing our jobs and more less worried about the lawsuits that our company might face. So Sung Min, in the the little time that we have left, from from a broader perspective, how do you contextualize the fact that I I think it's the first time in recent memory that a president's reelection campaign has sued a major American media outfit? Well, it's part of it's certainly an escalation of this war against the media that the president, that the White House, that the Trump campaign has had. um, I mean, virtually since before he was elected president. But I would, you know, I would you can't. I would point to what the New York Times has said in response to the lawsuit. I mean, you're not we have the First Amendment in this country and you're not going to sue someone for having an opinion that the president may not like. And obviously, they are public officials. They have to meet a much higher standard for this to be successful. And clearly, uh, the First Amendment is on this on we're on the right side of the First Amendment here. And, and, and an opinion at that. You've been hearing there from Sung Min Kim. She's a White House reporter uh, for The Washington Post. Sung Min, thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Jenny Medina has been covering 2020 for the New York Times and spent time with us today. Thanks, Jenny, for getting up early in L.A. Thank you. You can continue the conversation, get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. We're produced by Anna Bauman, Justine Dalmai, Lena Mata, Brittany Knott, Stefano Katsonis, Wes Martin, Hillary McQuilkin, James Ross, Dory Scheimer, Grace Tatter, and Adam Waller, with help from Liam Knox, Carolyn Love, and Bradley Noble. I'm David Folkenflick, and this is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions – and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big inside of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.